This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. We're back in our St. Louis studios this week after a week on the road, and we have some catching up to do with viewpoints from Cuba and about Colombia. But first, Jim Singer is here with our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Diplomats from the Vatican are set to resume negotiations in Venezuela today, Friday, November 11th. They are attempting to get opposition parties to work with the government of President Nicolas Maduro instead of holding strikes and demonstrations. Pope Francis is concerned the political crisis in Venezuela could break out into violence. Although Maduro has welcomed the chance to negotiate, one of his nationwide speeches this week cast doubt on his commitment to democracy. Neither through ballots or bullets. The opposition will never take back the National Palace. Maduro ordered that the process for a national recall election must be halted, although the Venezuelan constitution allows for such a recall and millions of voters signed petitions asking him to step down. The opposition wants the ability to recall Maduro or the chance for early elections. Maduro has more than two years left in his current term. Venezuela is suffering through a depression with hyperinflation and shortages of food and medicine. The election of Donald Trump as the next president in the United States resonated globally, but perhaps the Latin American country reacting the most to the news is Mexico. The Mexican peso lost 13% of its value in one day following the Trump victory. Now the peso is worth less than a nickel compared to the U.S. dollar. Trump had famously based much of his immigration and trade policy on criticizing Mexico. At first, Mexico's president only congratulated the U.S. on its electoral process. However, he admitted later that he had privately phoned Trump and offered congratulations. Many Mexicans are still angry that their president invited Trump for a visit during the campaign. Many saw the Trump visit as giving the Republican from the U.S. a boost, even though he had insulted Mexicans by calling them rapists. More election news this week, this time from Nicaragua, but instead of a surprise like the U.S., it's more of the same. President Daniel Ortega won his third consecutive term in office. Ortega, who leads the Sandinista party, has been president for the past nine years, and he also served as president in the 1980s after the Nicaraguan Revolution. Ortega won easily, taking more than 72% of the vote. But opposition parties had called for a voting boycott after the Supreme Court intervened in the elections this summer. The court removed candidates from the ballot and appointed a candidate for the main party to oppose Ortega. The U.S. State Department criticized the election as flawed. Some international observers criticized the process, saying that, like Venezuela, Nicaragua has now used its courts to create a dictatorship. News this week about medical breakthroughs against the Zika virus. First, a group of researchers in the U.S. say they may have found a way to inject a treatment into pregnant women who have the virus. Zika can cause brain defects for babies while they develop in the womb. The treatment would keep the virus from hurting the baby. Currently, there is no treatment, cure, or vaccine to prevent Zika. But that, too, may be changing. A separate group of researchers at the Walter Reed Army Institute in the U.S. is recruiting volunteers for human testing of a Zika vaccine. They say the vaccine has proved effective in monkeys. 
Researchers say the Zika outbreak has affected all of Latin America except Chile. Researchers believe this outbreak started in Brazil, where as many as 1.5 million people caught the virus last year. For Latin Pulse, I'm Jim Singer. Thanks, Jim. And now our shout-out to our listeners in Granada, Spain. Our listening group in Granada was our second largest this past month, behind only our listeners in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., in Northern Virginia. So we say mil gracias to all of our listeners in Spain and elsewhere around the globe. And now we return to Cuba this week after Donald Trump's surprise win in the U.S. presidential race the Cuban government ordered five days of special military exercises. President Barack Obama's Cuba policy faces the threat of major rollbacks by Trump, as many of the changes were based upon special executive orders. Even before the election, during the past few months, the Cuban government seemed to be taking a harder line against the United States, especially when it came to exchanges, specifically exchange trips that would put Cuban high school and college students in U.S. homes. We spoke about the issue of exchanges with Santiago Perez Benitez, a professor from the University of Havana and the assistant director of CIPI, the Cuban Center for Political Research. At the time of our discussion, Perez was also on an exchange trip working as a visiting professor at Webster University. We recorded our discussion on the university's campus in St. Louis. Here's the second part of our conversation. The overall projection of, of Cuban government of Cuban NGOs, Cuban academics, Cuban civil society, Cuban organizations, is to promote those exchanges because they're beneficial. I mean, f from the perspective of uh, Cubans having more access to the to information, to technology, to find out with the U.S. counterparts uh, a lot of things in common. And uh, what I've heard is also. Uh, uh, Productive. It's also useful for the U.S. counterpart. So it's everybody's gaining on that. So that that I would say it's, it's the overall uh, strategy, uh, and that's why there have been those increasing in, in exchanges in in all area and uh, in, in different areas. Just name it: healthcare, uh, oceanology, uh, biotechnology, other things. Uh, the point. Uh, Already, you know, the devil is in the details. There are very many problems, but some of them could be uh, just a motive for, uh, for negative reaction from the U.S. and also from the Cuban part. In this case that you're mentioning, the demand being raised by Cuban officials is that it was done, uh, it was done uh, beyond the established uh, channel of communication state to state Cuba and the and the US uh, that uh, it was not uh, it was done by the American embassy in in Havana without notifying the Cuban authorities that have uh, that have to deal with that so it was kind of perception that it's parallel it's outside the already agreed and established uh, channels of of communication and uh, i mean we cannot be naive here there is some history. There is, uh, there are a lot of, of of times that this has been used in terms of uh, of creating, as as they're saying, alternative uh, future leaders that would create uh, uh, spaces against uh, 
the existing system in Cuba, whether you like it or not, is lawful. It's been recognized by the U.S. Uh, government. Uh, so I would say that that's a, that's a claim of, of the Cuban authorities, but, uh, you know, it's, a, it's an individual case, and I don't think that's going to, to create overall problems in terms of the ongoing exchanges, because uh, both parts and all other parts, universities, are very much interested in. It's interesting to me to hear about these exchanges because it involved taking students from Cuba and, and having them come to places in the United States, even some in this state, in Missouri, um, for some length of time. And it, it's interesting to me that the Cuban government wouldn't know that this was going on until many weeks or months after the fact. I think that they had on the website of the U.S. Uh, embassy in, in Havana and the Cuban youngsters were applying on that. But um, if there was within the, I, I guess I'm not, I'm not, I cannot uh, speak on behalf of Cuban officials, but if they have been established before and if, if the Cuban authorities had known before, why not? I mean, the, the same with the U.S. youngsters there. What the, what the, Cuban uh, youngsters have been saying is that uh, they have been brought to the U.S., they have uh, certain uh, days they have been deprived of, of making phone calls, they have been receiving courses on uh, on democrat democratic ways of, of doing things inside Cuba, democratic, you know, with, with certain uh, aspects, right? Uh, so some of them where have been saying at least on Cuban TV that they had the impression of being utilized, right? That they didn't know what what's going to be about. But you know, our relationship has been very complicated, and this is just a very small one uh, of things that are happening right now. But I mean, nobody's going to remember that in two or three months. So it's, but it's relationship are like that. I mean, it's. The Cubans are accusing the, 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 the U.S. administration and U.S. Uh, National Endowment for Democracy and USID and U.S., you know, State Department of, of using the funds, the federal funds, for promoting, uh, I wouldn't say regime change, as was done by, by Bush administration, but systemic change, or at least creating the possibilities of changes in Cuba, and the, the position is the we don't we don't want to do that in in terms of Cuba's policy towards the U.S. We don't want to to generate any more problems that exist inside the U.S. cities or in the U.S. Uh, societies with the increasing tensions that that you see here. So let's have it on a very normal, open uh, way in relationship between societies and between governments. I, I think this naturally raises questions in our audience, who's mostly here in the United States, would ask, what is the feeling of the Cuban people toward President Castro? And we know, because we have covered it many times, the, there are really great nuances in Cuban politics that we don't often hear about in the United States. And so we know President Castro has said he is going to step down. There is going to be a transition. Um, what can you tell us about what Cubans are talking about regarding that transition and the end of a Castro as the president of the country? 
I was in the U.S. in the early 90s, and uh, there was at those times the question of what's going to happen after Fidel is out of country, after Fidel dies. Now, I mean, the, the transition has already taken place in 2006 when the, he stepped aside, was uh, Raul Castro. And uh, it's 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 very normal to 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 ask to to asking that question and that, that that's it. And a lot of people in Cuba also ask uh, that uh, that question. My perspective, and here you know, I don't want I don't have the crystal ball, but what I'm seeing in, term, in terms of trends and the perception of Raúl Castro's reforms and measures, uh, in general, have been taken positively. Uh, it's been allowing the selling of things that during previous years were prohibited uh, out of certain considerations in terms of selling houses, selling cars, selling cells, uh, the prohibition of Cubans not entering to the hotels. So all these prohibitions have been removed by by Raul, and uh, they also the reforms been made in terms of. Uh, uh, increasing privatization of certain areas of the retail business in terms of decentralization of taking of, of measures in terms of cooperativization of land and also some uh, uh, some more private owners um, in Cuba at least to have more possibilities of selling so there are a bunch of, of, of changes in Cuba that generally have been supported by the by the Cuban uh, public opinion and the Cuban uh, society. So if there is not to be Raul Castro in 2018, and would be what, what's been said at least, right, is Mr. Diaz-Canel, who is a younger guy, and, uh, but more or less the structures are going to be the same. Uh, I wouldn't expect to be drastic changes if uh, the most important variables of development of Cuba that have come to these points are going to, to continue. I would expect uh, variables, for example, in terms of the situation in Venezuela, there might be deterioration of the economic situation of Cuba, maybe a, a more hardening of the U.S. restrictions. Remember that embargo is in place. All that could uh, could create a lot of more, more criticism on the Cuban people because of the economic situation. But uh, we have already known that for 50 years, uh, when even if the economic situation is deteriorating or, or pressure is going to be increased, uh, people naturally circle the wagons. As it's in 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 all the in different societies, so there is a lot of criticism going on in Cuban society on a lot of things and on certain corruption issues that exist there, uh, in in the way sometimes the budgets are being approved uh, at the at the national level and not at the municipality level. There are a lot of discussions in terms of agriculture, which has never been in Cuban history, uh, in Cuban revolutionary history, efficient, effective. Uh, so, for example, right now it's a very ongoing uh, discussion in terms of one document that, um, that uh, the officials sent to the people to discuss, which is the, uh, the strategy for 2030.
in, in terms of what would be the changes, what it, what would be the model of, of Cuban society. There is an ongoing discussion of that. There is a lot of criticism on the role of the press. You have to have a more open press, more criticism. Uh, so uh, things are are evolving. People criticism is increasing. We are having now a more educated society, which do not accept things that it used to be in the 60s. Uh, but uh, that I would say that's within the framework of of the existing system and. Uh, if you would ask me if things are going to change drastically in 2018, uh, my bet is not that they're going to change to there because it's not the same. It, it, it's not only Raul, it's the historic generation who made uh, the revolution and who had uh, certain legitimacy. Now this new generation is coming, it doesn't have the historic legitimacy, but on the other hand, uh, it, it kept a lot of uh, social gains uh, due to the Cuban uh, uh, system, healthcare free of charge, education, uh, college um, uh, college uh, access, and uh, it also in the in the uh, security warfare, in the warfare uh, welfare of, of the population. So I would say that um, they are not the major reasons from my perspective uh, in order to es expect an abrupt change of Cuba. The situation is evolving. And also the same the international situation of Cuba is evolving. Uh, relations with the Western European countries, um, there's going to be a sign an, an agreement with Cuba and the European Union. European money is, is, is coming or at least it's been said that it's going to come uh, the case of the Canadians, the case of the Chinese, also the case of, of the Russians. So uh, there is at least uh, some light, right, in the, in the perspective. Thank you. Santiago Perez Benitez, our guest today on Latin Pulse. He is a professor at the University of Havana and the assistant director of CIPI, the Center for International Political Research in Cuba. Thanks again for being our guest. Thank you. Coming up, catching up on the derailed peace process in Colombia. Stay with us. This planet we call Earth, abundant with new food, new cures, new life. An amazing place. Please don't let it vanish without a trace. Call for your free World Wildlife Fund Action Kit with 10 simple things you can do to help leave our children a living planet. Call 1-800-C-A-L-L-W-W-F. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. While we were on our extended hiatus in the past few months, probably the most significant development that we missed was the voting in Colombia, a vote that rejected a proposed peace treaty between the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, a rebel group called the FARC, and the Colombian government. The aftermath of that vote is still resonating through Colombian politics and diplomacy. We asked Adam Isaacson of the Washington Office on Latin America, WOLA, to give us an update on the peace process in Colombia. We recorded our conversation via Skype from Washington, D.C. Last night in the United States, we, we had what we might say is a, a surprise election result because of polls. Uh, we've lived through a summer with Brexit and the polling with that 
that many people criticize that that too was a surprise result. And so I wonder, would you include the plebiscite in Colombia as a surprise result as we are trying to head toward a peace with the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia? And, and now that process seems to be a, somewhat in a limbo state. I would absolutely uh, um, call the plebiscite result a surprise result and one that defied what the pollsters were finding, just like Brexit, just like the November 8th election in the United States. Um, the, the polls were actually getting pretty optimistic. Uh, in uh, the second half of September, most of them were over 60%, indicating that over 60% of Colombians were going to vote yes in favor of the peace accord. Um, that all seemed to have changed very quickly. Now, Myself and other people who uh, I, I talked with who had been through Columbia in that period, um, we noticed that every cab driver we talked to <laughs> and a lot of, uh, you know, any stranger that you came across sort of on the street tended to be uh, vociferously uh, in favor of the no. Um, so that, you know, that, that gave us pause. But, you know, despite that, I think I and almost everybody else expected the yes vote to at least win narrowly. Um, but instead it lost by the narrowest of possible margins. And so I, I wonder where we are in this process. There has been some talk that President Juan Manuel Santos will take this to the Colombian version of, of their Congress and and try to work it through there. Uh, is Are we going back to renegotiate everything? Where does this all stand? Well, they do have to renegotiate at least some of it. Um, the, uh, the law that was passed that... that brought the plebiscite into being, the Constitutional Court in Colombia said President Santos cannot simply bring up or approve this accord. So it can't be this accord. It has to be a different accord. What they've done in a way that is uh, actually quite adult compared to what we've been watching in U.S. politics lately, um, leaders of the uh, No Coalition have met for a series of sessions with leaders of the, yes, I mean, mainly the government, that is, government negotiators, to hammer out some of the things that they would want to try to add to the peace accord. They came up with a, you know, a, you know just a whole exercise with matrices and spreadsheets, and they came up with a document that uh, I've not seen, but is it's more than 500 pages long and has uh, about 400 different uh, proposals for adjustments that uh, the no side would like to make to the talks or to the accord. Um, covering about 40 categories. Now, they're bringing those, I think they've sort of made a digest of that, and, and the negotiators have, uh, in the past week, brought that to Havana to discuss it with the guerrillas and to see what could be acceptable, what is not. Um, some things are, probably some things are not controversial. A lot of it is is trying to define terms better uh, that were left vague in the accords. But then some things alter the, the whole model of the talks and probably won't fly. So imagine, we have to hope, that in the next few weeks, uh, out of Havana, they come to an agreement on an adjusted accord that takes into account at least some of the no side's concerns. Um, if that happens, it's not clear what they'll do next. Um, if, they, if, if there's actually a new accord signed by Christmas, um, will they try to do another uh, uh, plebiscite so that it has sort of the legitimacy that popular opinion can give it? Awfully risky if they choose to go that way. Columbia law does not say there has to be an approval in a plebiscite. They can simply um, uh, try to uh, get it approved, uh, you know, or, or sign it, and then say, "Hey, this is our accord. Now let's have Congress pass the laws to implement it." Um, they may do that. Um, that way, if the no side is unhappy with the changes made, they can just sort of steamroll them because President Santos's coalition controls both houses of Congress. 
the downside to that is a clearly you don't have the mandate that uh, you know uh, an overwhelmingly or, or a yes vote would give you in, in a plebiscite, and b the process takes longer. The process they had envisioned with the plebiscite was as soon as the, that yes won, that there would be a fast track process where a subset of Congress would actually pass things quickly and get all these accords passed, um, so they could start implementing them very quickly. If they do it the regular way, where Congress just takes up all these proposals and the accords and turns them into laws. It has to go through eight debates covering two congressional sessions, and you really don't have a green light to start implementing the peace process until June or July at the earliest. Um, maybe the FARC would, uh, would assent, assent to starting this six-month disarmament process before then, but if they're afraid Congress will screw them, maybe they won't. So either way, you're looking at um, um, a delay unless you somehow get a, a referendum again in January or something, which seems uh, awfully complicated to try to do. What does this process say? about the strength of former President Uribe, who was against these accords? Um, it was a, a good outcome for um, Uribe. Uh, he was the most visible, uh, although he was certainly not the only, uh, figurehead in the No Coalition. Uh, Uribe, you know, he um, is one, obviously uh, a popular figure in Colombia. His approval ratings are still in the 50s, while, while Santos's are in the 20s or 30s. Um, that's that's dead. That's down from the 70s or 80s when he left the presidency, um, but he still has a strong following. However, he has not always done well in elections. His party, uh, this, the Democratic Center, only got about 18 or 19 percent of seats in the Senate and much fewer in the House during the 2014 elections. His candidate for president could not get elected. His party did not do well in 2015 municipal elections, so he doesn't have a lot of coattails. This was the first time that he seemed to have some real coattails on this yes or no votes. His his dominance of news cycles, his dominance of social media, his almost Trump-like ability to get uh, every uh, most outlandish claim uh, to uh, be what we talked about, what Colombians talked about all day uh, that day, um, really did influence strongly how the vote ended up. And now, of course, uh, it was a dramatic moment where you know Uribe and Santos met uh, for the first time in nearly four years uh, to re to initiate this process of, of trying to hammer out a new accord. Um, so his stock is way up in Colombia, and to be honest, the stock of the left and the social movements that carried so much of the water for the peace um, agreement, including the victims' movements, uh, are down. Uh, the Uribe and, and the right and the, the, the large landowners maybe not in the driver's seat yet. I think, for instance, Santos winning the Nobel Prize sort of kept him out of completely having the driver's seat. But boy, are they in a better position than they were before the plebiscite. And so now I, I wonder about the sticking point. What what was, besides having this former president pushing this, I, I wonder about what was the cause. What we hear in the media here in the United States was people voted no because they didn't feel that the FARC was punished enough in the process. Do you, you agree with that? It's a few things, yeah. Uh, the, the the accords left very vague what would happen to guerrillas, as well as military and others, but what would happen to guerrillas who were um, guilty of war crimes. It said they would be in a condition of restriction of liberty for five to eight years if they confessed everything they did. Did not define what that meant. How austere would the conditions be? It just made clear that that would not be tantamount to prison. Would they be restricted to a state or a department or just a village or a farm, um, you know, would they, what conditions would they sleep in, what would their telecommunications communications look like? So many of that left undefined. That left a lot of opening for the no supporters to say, hey, this is impunity, as well as some, you know, 
U.S.-based human rights NGOs to say, hey, this is impunity, this is uh, a, a violation of norms, uh, and it's an insult to the victims. So those are the main arguments that we heard against it, and they seem to have really had a lot of impact. Thank you so much. Adam Isaacson of the Washington Office on Latin America, WOLA, our guest today on Latin Pulse, joining us from Washington, D.C. via Skype. Thank you so much, Adam. My pleasure. Thank you, Rick. And now a programming advisory. Latin Pulse will return to indefinite hiatus after this program, but we hope to return to regular broadcast sometime in December or in the new year. So thanks for joining us this week for this special edition of Latin Pulse. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's Latin Pulse, all one word, at gmx.com. You can also find our program at the website Latin America Goes Global. You can find that website at Latin America Goes Global, written as all one word, dot org. If you're looking for earlier editions of our program, we're available in other locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Henty Flow. And as always, you can find us in the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website. You can find it at linktv, all one word, dot org, and then slash Latin dash pulse. That's linktv.org slash Latin dash pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse, and thanks to the production assistance of Sarah Boyd. For associate producer Jim Singer, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2016 Las Rocas Productions. Music